0: Support for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by AstraZeneca, proud partner in personalized medicine, developing tailored treatments for cancer patients. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with doctors Howard Hoxter, Anise Chagpar, and Stephen Gore. I'm Bruce Barber. Yale Cancer Answers is our way of providing you with the most up-to-date information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, in honor of Ovarian Cancer Awareness Month, Dr. Hoxter is joined by Drs. Elena Ratner and Mary Jane Minken. Dr. Ratner is an Associate Professor of Obstetrics, Gynecology, and Reproductive Sciences, and Dr. Minkin is a Clinical Professor of Obstetrics, Gynecology, and Reproductive Sciences at Yale School of Medicine. Dr. Hoxter is a Professor of Medicine and Medical Oncology and Associate Director for Clinical Sciences at Yale Cancer Center.
1: Tell us a little bit about your area of expertise. That sounds like a pretty long title. Uh, Obstetrics, Gynecology, Reproductive Science, Mm
2: -hmm. blah, blah, blah,
1: you know. Um,
2: So my area of expertise is gynecologic cancers. um, So cancers of the ovary, of the uterus, of the cervix, of the vulva, and so forth. Um, And Mary Jane and myself's particular interest is survivorship in those women, uh, and particularly with menopause and sexuality.
1: I see. And so, um, well, tell us a little bit, it's Ovarian Cancer Awareness Month, so can you tell us a little bit about maybe some of the other GYN cancers, but particularly ovarian cancer, and what people need to know for ovarian cancer awareness?
2: Sure, so um, ovarian cancer, is known as the cancer that whispers. Um, The reason it's known is that it's because, uh, unfortunately, these cancers continue to be diagnosed later in their stages. Um, Women with ovarian cancer frequently don't have symptoms until cancers are uh, more advanced. Uh, But we now know that that's not particularly true, that ovarian cancer might not be cancers that whisper. It might be that uh, they're actually speaking and nobody's listening. Um, There's been some recent literature Uh, that says that women with ovarian cancer, even at early stages, did have symptoms, symptoms like bowel symptoms, bladder symptoms. But it's very important to remember that those symptoms are also very normal in this kind of age population. So what separated women uh, who subsequently developed ovarian cancer from those that just had normal hormonal symptoms is that the women who had ovarian cancer had these symptoms every single day for two weeks versus women who just have a normal perimenopause, a menopausal symptoms, those symptoms come and go.
1: So bowel cramps, bladder cramps, pelvic or... A lower abdominal discomfort, but if it happens every day for two weeks, then people should be more concerned.
2: Exactly. I mean, at the end of the day, most likely it is not ovarian cancer. Ovarian cancer overall is not very common. Only 1.5% of women ever develop ovarian cancer. But it's important to know because we are our best advocates. So um, you have to pay attention to your body. And these symptoms are normal. They come and go, and that's fine. But if they don't come and go, if they just come and they stay, then you just need to see a physician.
1: Okay. And, and then what will the physician, if they go to their gynecologist that they see regularly, what would then happen?
2: Yeah, so their provider usually would just take a history and listen to the symptoms, um, do a pelvic exam, and a lot of these questions will be answered just by normal physical examination. Um, and then we frequently do ultrasounds. So there usually is um, a very straightforward way of uh, working these things up.
1: And that's all office testing? Correct. Right. Okay. So that's a key thing to be aware of if these kind of symptoms persist, see your gynecologist and they can be diagnosed fairly, um, fairly routinely. And uh, so uh, wh- what is it then about ovarian cancer in terms of the presentation in terms of the spread and whatever. Can you tell us a little bit more about that?
2: Sure. So just like I mentioned before, you know, we continue to struggle with um, diagnosing these cancers early. Um, and that, again, comes both, you know, we we, we we need women to pay attention to their bodies, and we ourselves need to do better with listening and working these things up. Um, so, so much of what we do now is actually prevention. Um, you know, in the older days, we can concentrated on treatment uh, for cancer, then we talked about cure for cancer, then we talked about early detection, and now the future is prevention. And prevention really can only happen if we identify the women who are at higher risk for those cancers. Uh, we now believe that a great majority of these cancers, as, as many cancers, are somehow genetically related, Um, so for example something called the BRCA gene, uh, the gene that became um, widely known with Angelina Jolie and her article in New York Times, um, which is one of the genes that predisposes women to developing these cancers.
1: But she had breast cancer. Right? I don't
2: think she
3: had any cancer. Oh, okay. <laughs> um,
1: but many women... She didn't, but
3: she had a family history right. of ovarian cancer. Oh,
2: correct.
1: I see. And correct. But many, more commonly women, have breast cancer with BRCA Yes. Yeah.
2: So women with BRCA1 and BRCA2 genes are at risk
3: for breast cancer and ovarian cancer as well as some other cancers. Um, yeah, you know, and one thing that I'd just like to recommend for the general public as a general OBGYN is that in many situations, birth control pills have historically gotten a bad rap. Oh, I don't like hormones or things like that. But just for general listeners, that actually taking a birth control pill on a regular basis reduces your risk of getting ovarian cancer by about 50%, which is probably the most effective chemo-preventive method we have out there. So if a young woman is trying to evaluate birth control methods for herself, Just as a general rule, if she's a good candidate for birth control pills, that's an excellent method of chemo prevention for her in the long run.
1: Good to know. Glad you brought that up. Right.
2: So that's exactly what Mary Jane is talking about. You know, so so much of what we do now is prevention. You know, first, identifying women who are at risk, doing genetic testing, you know, really listening to the family history, uh, trying to pick out whether somebody truly has cancer that runs in their families. Um, and second, exactly like Mary Jane said, prevention. Um, birth control pills are fantastic. You know, somebody who takes them for five years decreases their risk by 50%. Somebody who takes it for 10 to 15 years can decrease it for as high as 90%. It's incredible reduction.
1: And and we used to think that the BRCA only ran in families where it's clear that people had it in every generation and young people had it. But now the uh, American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology recommends that every woman who has ovarian cancer be tested. It's much more common than we thought, is that correct?
2: That's exactly correct. You know, we used to think that this is only limited to women of Ashkenazi Jewish uh, ethnicity. We know now that's not the case. There's many other ethnicities that are also um, have a higher prevalence, uh, higher risk of these BRCA mutation. And yes, every single woman with BRCA mutation uh, with ovarian cancer now has to be tested for BRCA mutation, not just for a family, but also for the treatments, because that really changes her treatment this Right. Well, right
1: and and the family history can be helpful if you have a very big family, but with smaller families today, sometimes they aren't so predictive.
2: Exactly, that's exactly correct. We actually see a lot of women who, uh, who get diagnosed with BRCA mutation just because they wanted to because their families were so small.
3: And one thing to remember is that the father side of the family is important too. We have right. a mom and we have a dad. And then that indeed, right. that BRCA mutations can be passed on through the dad. So you wanna know your father's family history as well as your mom's.
1: Right, right, very true. Okay. So um, other familial kind of syndromes in in ovarian cancer other than BRCA that people should be aware of?
2: There's some. um, There's some that are more popular. There's some that are less. That's why we um, are such strong um, supporters of uh, genetic counselors uh, who are specific professionals who would take your family history and make a big pedigree and really see if you are at risk for any familial uh, genetic disorders. But there's something called Lynch syndrome which predisposes women to colon cancer, uterine cancer, and ovarian cancer. Right.
1: Uterine cancer is the second most common for Lynch syndrome. That's
2: right. And ovarian is third, I think. So uh, 15% of women with Lynch uh, syndrome can develop ovarian cancer. Um, so, so yes. So there's definitely um, familial syndrome out there that you should be aware of if you feel that the cancer is running in your family, because that would be one of those things you can do. Knowledge is power.
1: So... Um, While we're talking about uterine cancer, so if you go every year to your gynecologist and you go for the pelvic exam and they do a pap smear, does that help with detection of ovarian cancer?
2: It does not. Uh, Pap smears are only detection for cervical cancer, and even those are not 100% perfect. But uterine cancer is a little bit easier than ovarian cancer. With uterine cancer, there's usually symptoms. Uh-huh. Any woman who, have gone, who has gone through menopause and now has any sort of vaginal bleeding, that's abnormal. You know, um, I always tell providers that if a woman is diagnosed with uterine cancer at a later stage, that's our failure. That we as providers need to tell all women that if you have any bleeding after menopause, that is not normal and you need to see your provider. So that's why most women with uterine cancer actually get diagnosed at an at early stage because they have symptoms, they see their physician, um, and they get diagnosed.
1: Mm-hmm. But again, the pap smear does not detect ovarian cancer. You need different kinds of detection. Blood tests? Are blood tests helpful?
2: Nope. No, with uterine cancer, again, it's really just symptoms. If anybody has bleeding, they usually get, again, a physical examination, a biopsy, and an ultrasound, and that's usually how right. these get.
1: An ovarian up. blood tests for ovarian cancer?
2: Yeah, so that's a more difficult um, question. Um, Yes, in women who are at higher risk for um, ovarian cancers, we do do this screening where we do ultrasounds and a blood test called CA125, it's a tumor marker. It is not a great test. Um, We don't love CA125, but it's kind of the best we got. So we use CA125 in combination with ultrasounds, knowing that a lot of times CA125 can be either falsely positive or falsely negative.
3: So it's not anything we would recommend routinely. Right. And getting back to, you mentioned earlier, ACOG recommendations. ACOG actually does not recommend doing routine blood tests, CA-125s and routine ultrasounds, just as general screening, only looking for high-risk folks. And what happens to my patients periodically, and I would say it happens once every year or two, there are blast emails that go out to the universe. I don't know where they come from, (laughs) um, saying, go talk to your doctor about getting a CA-125. And I have a bunch of nervous folks coming in. And I'm, you know, we didn't do a CA-125. I said, no, nor, nor do you need one. Um, So as a routine screen, unfortunately, it fails.
1: It's it's not sufficiently predictive so that it should be used for general screening, only people who are at high risk. Okay. So, um, and uh, in terms of um, ovarian cancer awareness, um, any other symptoms that people get they should be aware of that, you know, would be of concern to get to your doctor?
2: Right, so ovarian cancers um, usually happen after menopause or kind of around the time of menopause. And that's what makes it so challenging, because a lot of women go through some changes during that time, so some weight gain, some bloating, some some bowel symptoms, and that is all normal. I think it's very important to remember that ovarian cancer in general is not very common, and most symptoms are just normal menopausal symptoms. But again, the symptoms of bowel, um, cramping, uh, bladder symptoms, urinary tract infections that just keep coming, bloating, You know, all of a sudden you feel like you need to go shopping and get a bigger size of clothes, um, fatigue, stuff like that. Some of that
1: bloating can be actually accumulating fluid in the abdomen, which is something to see the doctor about
3: exactly and there's one symptom because of course bloating i would say happens in 100 percent of menopause right. ladies exactly. <laughs> it's a menopause doc i don't see one person who doesn't complain about bloating um but and of course people get panicky and you know and obviously i do lots of exams and lots of ultrasounds on folks um the one symptom that may be helpful not saying this has to be you know is a demarcating symptom but and that if a woman complains, and the fancy word as I explained to patients is early satiety. I feel full soon. I take three spoons of food and I'm done. I don't feel like eating anymore. That's something you got to pay attention to. You really do need to pay attention to that. Mm-hmm. Um, so certainly, as I said, pay attention to bloating, but you start dealing with feelings of early fullness, please call your quick care provider. Mm-hmm.
1: Okay. So bloating to the extent where you need to let out your pants. Uh, early satiety, pain, bl- things that don't go away in a couple weeks that are there every day. These are symptoms to be aware of for ovarian can- cancer awareness. Doesn't mean you've got it, but it means go get checked out. Okay, well, we're going to take a short break for a medical minute. Please stay tuned to learn more information about ovarian cancer with Drs. Elena Ratner and Mary Jane Minken.
0: Support for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by AstraZeneca, proud partner in personalized medicine, developing tailored treatments for cancer patients. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. There are over 13 million cancer survivors in the U.S. and over 100,000 here in Connecticut. Completing treatment for cancer is a very exciting milestone, but cancer and its treatment can be a life-changing experience. Following treatment, the return to normal activities and relationships may be difficult and cancer survivors may face other long-term side effects of cancer, including heart problems, osteoporosis, fertility issues, and an increased risk of second cancers. Resources for cancer survivors are available at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers, such as Yale Cancer Center and its Milo Cancer Hospital, to keep cancer survivors well and focused on healthy living. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas.
1: Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Howard Hoxter and I'm joined tonight by my guests, Doctors Elena Ratner and Mary Jane Minken, and we're discussing ovarian cancer. So we've been discussing some of the uh, symptoms that uh, people should be awareness aware of for ovarian cancer that might lead to a physician visit and to be evaluated. So can you tell us a little bit about uh, what happens if people have a suspected ovarian cancer, what's happening in diagnosis and then in treatment?
2: So the paradigm of treatment for ovarian cancer is drastically changing. Um, We have treatments today that we did not have three months ago. Um, We, um, in ovarian cancer, truly now believe in personalized therapy um, and targeted approach. So in the older days, like two years ago, everybody would just use to get the same chemotherapy, and most women would respond. Nowadays, that's not the case. Nowadays, here at Smilo, we test every single tumor, Uh, we know exactly what kind of mutations the tumor has, and then the woman gets personalized treatment, treatment specifically for her and for her tumor. So chemotherapies are easier. Some of them are now oral, so women don't even have to come in my office to get them. Um, And um, the success is greater and the toxicity is less.
1: That's very, very encouraging. So does surgery still play a role in the treatment of ovarian cancer?
2: Absolutely. Surgery is kind of the, the, the big part um, of treatment for ovarian cancer. Uh, the goal of the surgery is to remove all the cancer and leave nothing behind. Those are the women that do really well. Um, and then once the tumor is all removed surgically, then we treat microscopic cells with treatment, with chemotherapy, or these targeted approaches.
1: Uh-huh. And that that's the normal thing. But sometimes you start with chemotherapy first in some cases.
2: Yeah, most of the time we do. Um, but even in those cases, we always try to find something a little bit extra, something uh-huh. um, that would work a little bit better than the standard. Uh-huh.
1: Okay. And uh, for the patients with the BRCA mutations that we talked about, there's a new drug that's been approved. There's a little bit different. Uh, approach now,
2: right? So that's one of the one of the examples that I was referring to. Uh, the women with BRCA mutation, um, they there's now a drug that we've been waiting for for a long time for that to become FDA approved, which it now is, and it's a pill that works specifically um, for DNA repair. The the cells are then unable to fix themselves, so all the cancer cells die, um, and it's an oral uh, drug. And th- there's now three of them that are all FDA approved, um, and our So women take them at home and don't even come into office.
1: And you use that instead of chemotherapy?
2: Very frequently we use it instead of chemotherapy, um, but it's not just for women with BRCA mutation. Um, only 10% of so uh, of women that we know of have the BRCA mutation, but we now think that additional, good probably 30% have a BRCA mutation in their tumors. So they themselves don't have it, so they cannot pass it on to their daughters and their sons, uh, but their tumors has it. And that's a great thing for us because it gives us an opportunity to be able to treat it with this pill.
1: So. There are two things. One, you test the tumor itself for any DNA abnormalities and mutations which are not necessarily inherited. Uh, Mostly those are acquired because the tumors go bad. Exactly. There are cells that go bad. But sometimes it's inherited like in the Germ line, BRCA, inherited syndromes, but sometimes the tumors have them anyway. The, these kind of pills would work in either case.
2: Exactly, exactly. So very many times the women come and then we get the, the blood testing done and they're so disappointed that they don't have the mutation, but that's actually not the most common way that we will treat these mutations. Most of them will actually be in the tumor, not uh-huh. in the blood.
1: And, and so that's, in, then they don't have to worry about passing it on. Exactly. So that's, that's really important.
2: Yeah. It's kind of a double benefit. You know, uh-huh. they don't pass it on to their children, but yet it gives us an opportunity to be able to target those, those mutations. I see.
1: So you two said in the beginning that you're very interested in survivorship and what happens after treatment for ovarian cancer. Can you tell us a little bit about um, what you're working on in that area?
2: Yeah, so that's the big thing that Mary Jane, that's our passion, we um, really want to not just treat the women with ovarian cancer and uterine cancer and breast cancer and not just cure them, but we want to assure that they have um, a great quality of life during treatment and after treatment. Um, we you, we always have to remember that these women are normal, young women they just happen to be diagnosed with this disease and, you know, they wake up one day and their life is different. You know, they're getting chemotherapy, things things are not the same. So what we try to do is reinstill that sense of normalcy, give them their lives back, you know. These women just want to get in the, in the, in the car and drive their kids to school and, and go on a date with their husband, and that's what we're trying to do. We want to kind of instill back
3: the normalcy that they lost during the treatment. Yeah, and we started a program uh, here um, about oh, 10 years ago now uh, for women. Not We started off with gynecological cancer patients, but we've now extended to all, you know, cancer survivors to deal with issues of sexuality, intimacy, and menopause, and we indeed call it our SIMS clinic sexuality, intimacy, and menopause for survivors. And for example, a simple thing, um, that women who have had ovarian cancer, many of them are indeed candidates for hormone replacement therapy. Many women aren't aware of that. Um, And that certainly enhances quality of life for many of these women. And certainly, um, if these women are dealing with sexuality problems, things like vaginal dryness and stuff after uh, having surgery and chemotherapy, that we can address these with a lot of therapies, uh, vaginal therapies, and other kinds of medications that can be very helpful and can restore a very normal sex life. The other thing that we do with our uh, clinic, our SIMS clinic, is we have strong support from the psychology department and every one of our patients meets with a member of our psychology team to talk about some of the really profound changes that can occur to um, emotional issues, to psychological issues with sex, and that we can schedule ongoing therapy with the psychology team if some counseling is in order. Um, So it really works out very nicely to try to join both both the physical issues, hormonal issues, and psychological issues uh, for many of our survivors who do need a little bit of help that way. And we were hoping we're enhancing quality of life significantly.
1: Oh, I'm sure. And so I want to emphasize, while you started focusing on women with gynecologic cancers, this is common for women who've had any kind of cancer, and you see them in your clinic if they are having these issues.
3: Absolutely. We see, again, a lot of breast cancer survivors, colon cancer survivors who've had radiation therapy. I mean, we have a lot of people that we've seen. Um, Even uh, hematological cancers present with some gynecological manifestations, believe it or not. So we see lots of different folks, and uh, we're just delighted to be able to help them.
2: Uh, we most recently were able to um, expand this program to include not just women, but also men. Yes. Um, and there's now um, an extension of the program with the, within the urologic department with uh, Dr. Stan Honig, um, who now only also takes care of men. And the counseling that Mary Jane uh, referred to with uh, Dr. Dwayne du- Ferren Um, is also for couples. So that's one of the beauties of this program, is that we don't just take care of the woman, we are able to take care of the couple, of the family, and so forth.
1: And, And can you tell us a little bit more about some of the things that you do in the clinic then?
3: Well, sure. And the other, th- the other thing we should mention before getting into other things is we see a lot of our young women who come in carrying the diagnosis of BRCA, BRCA folks, who mm-hmm. themselves have not yet fortunately been diagnosed with a tumor, but find out they're uh, carriers, and they're going to be having some preventative surgery, like having their ovaries removed. But many of these women are having their ovaries taken out at a very young age um, to prevent the cancer from occurring, uh, which is what we want to do. But again, the good news is that in many of these women, hormone therapy is quite quite reasonable, and we like to start talking about it long before they have surgery. We talk about what's going to happen after surgery, how are we going to help you after surgery. And we have a lot of data out there showing that hormone therapy in these women is really quite safe and actually helpful for their long-term health. So we try to start doing the counseling early before they actually have surgical interventions. But certainly, as far as our um, interventions with a lot of these women, That we deal with hormonal medications, non-hormonal medications. We do a lot of work with dilator therapy for a lot of these women, uh, particularly those who've had some radiation therapy where we see a lot of those folks to help them. So there are a lot of interventions that we can do to really make their lives much better.
1: And um, for the women who are the BRCA carriers, uh, the education sounds like it's really, really important, but there's also screening uh, and so forth. Uh, Do you do that in your clinic?
2: So we do that, we have a separate clinic where we take care of women with BRCA mutations or other mutations, or women who are deemed to be at higher risk for ovarian cancer. Yeah, so we have a high-risk clinic uh, that we really just deal with women uh, who we believe to be at high risk. Um, I just wanna, again, emphasize the point that Mary Jane made, because now Mary Jane and I are gonna be just jumping over each other to tell you stuff. It is so so imperative um, that women with BRCA mutation know that they are candidates for uh, hormone replacement after their surgery. A lot of these women undergo these... We call them risk-reducing surgeries, where the ovaries and fallopian tubes are removed as young as age 35. Right. I see a lot of patients, a lot of young women who are referred to me from the community, that after these women have their surgery, they are not placed on hormones because uh, providers believe that because they have the BRCA mutation, they are not. Uh, it's not safe for them to be on hormones.
1: Right. So, so just... What happens is that after your ovaries are removed, even at a very young age, you become immediately menopausal. You you don't have the female hormones that are normally made. So you're saying it is safe for them to get these hormones, even though they have a BRCA syndrome.
3: Exactly. Not only safe, but better for their health.
1: Better for their quality of life.
3: And the other thing that I want to mention as far as it's a quasi-prevention issue, but I I really want to make an advertisement here, if a young woman is diagnosed with any kind of cancer... cancer, you know, hematological cancer, you know, lymphomas, whatever, that one thing we also try to do is to get the word out to these young women and their oncologists that they should work on preservation of fertility for after their chemotherapy. It's a very important area. And so if any of our listeners are, you know, know somebody who's got an unfortunate young woman who's been diagnosed with a tumor, give us a call. We want to see you because we can basically help these young women obtain eggs that can be frozen, very nicely and be available after they're, you know, cured from their cancer, they've had their chemotherapy, which unfortunately can interrupt fertility for some of these young women later, you know, earlier on in their lives. But we can actually save eggs so that when they want to become moms, they can become moms.
1: And that's a pretty routine thing even today.
3: It is. And many people are not aware of it. And many people, of course, panic the minute you hear the word cancer. Understandably, you get very anxious and say, I've got to take care of this like yesterday. And the answer is for most young women with cancer, we have that time that we can actually be able to save some eggs for her for after her cancer is cured. And again, we've known this for guys for years. We've been able to take sperm from young men and freeze them and save them. But now we can get eggs from young women, and we have that time and opportunity to do so.
1: That's excellent news. So, even if it takes an extra week or two, it's worth it.
3: Absolutely. And as I said, it's not going to harm the cancer prognosis, and we can let these young ladies become moms later on.
1: Uh, it's all very exciting.
2: It is. It's, it's a new, new paradigm. You know, things are changing. This is not the old days. Um, we are not just taking care of cancers. We're taking care of them smartly. We are coming up with treatments uh, that will not just take care of the cancer, but also will allow women to have quality of life. And that is, again, something that we really want to do. We want to be able for the women to be able to live their
0: lives. Dr. Elena Ratner is an Associate Professor of Obstetrics, Gynecology, and Reproductive Sciences, and Dr. Mary Jane Minken is a Clinical Professor of Obstetrics, Gynecology, and Reproductive Sciences at Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. I'm Bruce Barber reminding you to tune in each week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas.